Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. In honor of Black History Month, every Monday in February, we're celebrating Black histories, current realities, and futures in the Appalachian region and beyond, right here on Mountain Talk. We begin this month-long series in Pennington Gap, Virginia, at the Appalachian African American Cultural Center. In November 2016, WMMT's Benny Becker joined NPR's Howard Burkus on a visit to the Cultural Center, where founder and director Ron Carson led them on a tour. Lord, I swear all night long. Now, of course, you think some people now really ain't got no place to go. I said it down in the line. This is the African American Culture Center. Um, my great 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 grandmother Rachel Scott built this building for eight thousand five hundred dollars in nineteen and thirty-nine. And the reason she built the building because and I use the term they used back then, the colored children of this area didn't have a school to go to. So where my house sits is where the old Baptist church used to sit. And this was the school that they attended, that wooden building right here. And my mother, my mother was the first group of students in this building in 1940. And I was the last group when integration came in 1965-66. And um, the story, and, and it, it gets me every time I talk about it, is between 65-66 up until 1988, it was used as a Head Start Center. They consolidated schools here in Lee County, which meant this building was to be freed up. They were going to tear it down just so happened my wife and I moved back here from Boston in 88 when they was building a new high school. So we had to petition the Board of Supervisors and fight for this building and the stories up there on the wall with the NWCP having to come in. My grandmother built it, but they maintain it and claim it to be theirs. So, so um, if you read this right here, this is the house that I was born in. Rachel Scott. Rachel was one of the first barbers in Pennington Gap. She would only, only cut white male hair during the era of 1888. Rachel died January 31st, 1947. A large property owner. She owned the land where the new Lee Bank and Trust, bottom of the hill is, currently being built, plus the land where the Pennington Middle School, Hardy's, Pizza Hut, all those places out there you saw coming in, she owned out to there. She was a smart business owner, but at the same time, she wasn't because we have deeds in this building, in that trunk, where she would trade 50 acres for 500 head of cattle. Cattle dies, land don't die, okay? And that's why they call it real estate, because in my mind, it's the only thing that's real, all right? So we have several deeds to where she just took property and got livestock, favors here, favors there. So 
When I moved back here, we had less than 20 acres. And at one time, she had well over 2,000 acres of land in this whole town, mountainside, everywhere. So, but she was a barber. She was the only barber in the area. And she had a special meaning to me because my childhood started here. Um, this picture here is 1960, and that's me right here. Um, in, in the school, standing right out there. And this is my mother over here picture of her in 1939, with her being the first child in the building, and I was the last. This is me right here in 1960, attending this school. And uh, I went down to the school board office to, to get all the old records and stuff, and we ended up with this. All of the black kids in the county were on yellow paper, and the kids with disability was on blue paper, and the white kids were always on white paper. <laughs> so these are the old uh, records that the teachers and the school system kept during the, this was back in 1934, 35, 36, and you can see where they got race colored. You went to Boston to go to school? Yes. Where'd you go to school? BU, Boston okay. University. Right. Yeah. So why did you come back here? I came back, that's a good question. You know what? I was a warden of a prison. I, I majored in criminal justice, and I sort of played the political field a little bit. I got into the Mike Dukakis administration, and I rose up through the ranks in penology. And when Mike Dukakis decided to run for president in 88, I, I was civil service. I could have kept my salary, but I could have been turned a key in a cell block because the new administration came in. And my wife and I decided, we lived in Framingham, Mass, 30 miles out of Boston. We decided to sell our home uh, and come back here. And um, this land, the whole hillside was vacant. And we decided to, to build here and and be mortgage free. So but why did you come back? So you you're like you mentioned that most of the people who were here, most of the African Americans never, who had been here, never, they all left. Came you came back. My ties, my 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 I am able I I've been blessed. My mom is still alive. My mom is 84. Um uh, I just wanted to come back here for some reason. I you know, that's it's a good question. I, I just knew that I, I was tired of the hustle and bustle of, of the city life. Uh, I was tired of, of being a whole different person when I went to Deer Island, because the prison that I was awarded was on an island, and you had to be a certain person around the inmate <clears throat> and, the, and the correctional staff. And I just got tired of being that person. Now, I could have probably stopped that and got found something else, uh, maybe a police officer or something in the criminal justice field, but I just wanted to come back to the mountains. I, I was homesick. I wanted to come back. Now, my wife is from Boston, and she said, I give you five years here, and that's been 25, 26, 27 years ago, and it was a major culture shock for her, but she had adjusted. She's on the town council here, uh, the first African-American ever female ever. So we have sort of, you know, um, um, 
broke the ceiling <laughs> a little bit. Uh, and uh, something that, that, that we didn't mention up in the, the Black Lung Office is that um, I am highly respected in the Black Lung world with coal miners. And when you have most of the coal, I, I won't say most, but a certain group of coal miners, people will associate them with being rednecks, being prejudiced, being anti-Obama and everything. And some of that's true, but I have yet to have one to disrespect me because of the work. They see my heart, and they know where I'm coming from. And it's not about the color of my skin. It's about they feel the goodness that I try to project every day of my heart and trying to give them a better quality of life. And I think, you know, I'm not sure if you guys are religious or not, but I think God had a reason for me to come back here. I really do. To save this building that my great-great-great-grandmother built that was going to be tore down, to help the coal miners of this, of, 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 of this region, and um, um, for my wife to be on the town council, to be on the, on the governor's executive board, one of ten in, in, in the state of Virginia, um, to uh, sit on his uh, council. I just think he just had a reason for she and I to, to, uh, come, to come back here. If that makes sense. But you're saying you've been back 27 years, 26, 27? We, we moved back in 1988. So when you came back, there wasn't a, the, this job didn't exist yet, is oh, that right? Oh, no, this job didn't exist until 1991. I went to work for social services and CPS, Child Protective Services. And I've only had four, four jobs in my life. Uh, the first one was uh, a store detective catching shoplifters for Neiman Marcus. Uh, my second one was with the prison system for 17 years. I worked for social services and CPS for about four, three and a half, four years. And I've been in black lung now for, for 25 years. So uh, this... Is it. I mentioned to you that I had a recording from WWMT. My grandfather, Smith Carson, you walk over here, was a semi-famous musician. They called him Spike Carson. This is one of his recordings, and you get to hear his music in a few minutes. Um, he, uh, he played with Louis Armstrong. Um, he he, he uh, actually sat down with Elvis Presley at a restaurant and played with him, and he was a self-taught musician. And Maxine Kenny from WWMT is an eight-minute audio, and I would love to play it for you. Is that yeah. okay? Okay, good. This is very cool. Now, another thing before I play that, you see this guy right here, Dr. Gabriel. This is Dr. Gabriel. This was in his office back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Dr. Gabriel was the only doctor, and he was a co-company doctor, Blue Diamond Co., that would lay his hands on a black person. He delivered this man here, and his picture is nowhere else in this region in the county. Uh, his wife, Jeannie, she just passed away about two years ago, brought this picture here. He sent three students out of this building to medical school three are, are doctors, uh, he delivered me, he delivered my mother, he delivered every black person up to 1967 in this whole area that you are standing in. So, he, 
he's had a special place here. Can I ask on, on this one, it says, we came with the coal and the railroad. Does yes. that, does that, I mean, does your family story kind of line up with that? Yes, or is it, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, my, as I mentioned earlier, my great, great, great grandfather was a coal miner. Uh, he was born down in Samuel, Alabama, uh, working in the cotton fields in the late 1800s, early 1900s, migrated to this area uh, for a better quality of life. Um, it told him that coal mining was, was, was a better job, paid more than picking cotton. So uh, he came here and um, generation after generation, we've been coal miners. I do have, have a couple of uncles work for the railroad uh, they wasn't conductors. They were, you know, they they laid track and things of of that nature. Yes. You, did you say that you had some Cherokee ancestors too? Yes, that? my uh, Rachel Scott, who actually uh, amassed the land here and built this building, um, was um, her mother was Cherokee, and um, and uh, the man that she married, Champ Scott, was African American. So she was. Cherokee and African American, yeah, and I also have some Melungeons in my family too. You familiar with Melungeons? I am, but I, it's, I haven't. I, I'm curious to hear how you de, how you define it because I've heard different people talk about it well, different ways. Well, we 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 have the Plexer papers here. Uh, uh, Brent Kennedy, you know Brent Kennedy. He's a he was a professor up at um, University of Virginia. Uh, Brent did this book here. <clears throat> Um, the Melungeon, The Resurrection of Proud People, Brent Kennedy. And Brent was on my board for a long time here. When, when we first started, we had a board of directors, and we, I wrote one grant, and it was with the uh, Kellogg Foundation. And I think we got like $10,000, and that's the only grant ever written. And uh, just didn't have the people to, to keep it running. I had to work full time, so... So maybe when I retire, I can address this a lot more and expand off from it. And you know, um, we are one of the only standing colored schools from Roanoke back. Most have been torn down. The other ones are used for municipal work or storage or whatever. But this is the only one from Roanoke back. That's like 300 miles whole area that wasp in there. Uh, that is uh, that is still standing. Um, Melungeons, um, I guess you heard about as much as I have. The story goes that they, um, they mix with uh, Native Americans, uh, African Americans, uh, Scotch-Irish um, from the Mediterranean part of the, of the world, um, and um, settled down in Sneedville, Tennessee, large population there. Well, my great-great-great-grandfather uh, was from Sneedville, and he was claimed to be a Melungeon. And his last name was Collins, and Collins is a name associated with uh, Melungeons. So is uh, the Goodmans and other names. And if my wife was here, she had a council meeting today, but she would tell you when she first moved here, she said, what are these people? They're not white? They're not black? But she said they they olive color looking. They got the the, the black hair, and uh, she she said, "What are they?" 
And uh, I said, well, it's probably Melangin. She had never heard of Melangin up, up, up in Massachusetts. So we got a hold of Brent Kennedy, and Brent uh, did a, a study, and uh, he came here, and he worked with us, and uh, this is some of his papers, the update on it's old now, but uh, Melungeon research, and we became familiar with, with the Melungeons and the data. And it's also, you would see on black lung x-rays, sarcoidosis, you would see a lot of that in Melungeon coal miners and not in white coal miners. So it's a trait there. Now, doctors would say, it's not complicated. He has Sarco, and um, probably 80% of our miners who has some type of melungeon descent has a sarcoidosis. So that's something that's, that runs in that um, genealogy line, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Let me play that recording yeah. for you okay, before yeah. I forget. In the original recording, Mr. Carson walked across the room and began playing a piece produced for WMMT in 1992 by Maxine Kinney about his grandfather, Spike Carson. The audio is a bit hard to hear, and there's some background conversation, so we pulled the original quarter-inch tape from our archives and sent it off for digitization. The piece features Ron Carson and his mother, Shirley Taylor, sharing memories of Spike Carson. Many fine musicians have called the coalfields home. Most often, fiddlers and banjo players come to mind. But there were others, among them Spike Carson, a well-known piano player from Pennington Gap, Virginia. He and his band played swing, jazz, boogie-woogie, the popular music of the 40s and 50s. Here, Maxine Kinney goes to Lee County to visit with his kin. Well, I can remember um, when I was about maybe 9, 10, Every Saturday, my grandfather, Smith Carson, or better known as Spike Carson, would come on TV on the Virgin Q Wax variety show. And uh, we had a, a old black and white TV model that used to sit in the living room, and we all would gather around it to watch him every Saturday. And people would call and request numbers for him, you know, for him to play. Uh, I can remember my Aunt Thelma coming home one year and she had this little plastic thing that you put on the TV to uh, make it color. Um, it wasn't like a color TV because you had red up here and the, the arms were green down here and the body was blue. But to us it was, it was a color TV and we all really sat around and enjoyed it. Oh yes, that was... The highlight of the, of the day on Saturday. Ron Carson and his mother, Shirley Taylor, have fond memories of their grandfather and father, Spike Carson. Carson worked at a dry cleaners during the week, but on the weekend, he was an entertainer. He was known to Southwest Virginia's best piano player. And he stopped playing piano when he was about three years old. Well, my grandmother, Rachel Scott, had an organ. And as he was small, he just climbed to the 
arguing, you know, and just start playing rap. Then later on, they got a piano, and they said, bye. When he was five years old, he could play anything. Later on, he formed a band, and it was named the Black and White Band. Back then, you know, everything was segregation, so they had uh, one white guy playing in the band. So then they just started naming it Black and White Band. Was that unusual that there would be blacks and whites playing in the same band? Back in the 40s, it was. I saw him perform with the band, yes. Uh, I remember, not all the names, but I remember Jimmy Patton played uh, the bass, the stand-up bass. And he had a, a white member in the band named Dave Tipton played with him. He played the trumpet. And... Um, there was a gentleman by the name of uh, Oscar Beatty, they call Lightning. He, he played the drums. Um, and what kind of music was it they were playing? It was more of a boogie-woogie, they called it. Um, a lot of, he did a lot of, um, I don't know, riffs or whatever with the piano. He was like a swing and, um, yeah, a tremendous musician. He would write songs, arrange them, and... Before you know it, the band be playing them. But then where he plays, mostly just, you know, all white places. Spike Carson and his black and white band played everywhere. High school proms, churches, United Mine Workers picnics, and at clubs where people came to dance. In the 40s and 50s, many southwest Virginia towns had clubs, most of them for whites only. Shirley Taylor remembers only two black clubs, one in Appalachia and one in Norton. Then later on they opened up a club at Norton, Virginia. The name was Club Shorty Jar, and he was the first band that played there. Uh, he used to play over in St. Paul, and um, we would go right over with him, but we would sit in the car. We would pack lunches like it was a picnic. And while he'd be playing in the club, my mom and my grandmother and I would be sitting out in the car waiting for him. Sometimes it'd be 3, 4 o'clock in the morning before the dance was over, and it'd be around about 6 before we got home on the Sunday morning. It was a white club. Now, if it had been a black club, would you have gone in? Well, I probably wouldn't have gone in, but my mom or uh, 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 my grandmother would have went in. I'm sure they would have. But those, that was the years where there wasn't any mixings. But then the club that was here in Lee County now, that uh, at the Stoneflesh Rock up here, now it was a white club he played at on weekends. It wasn't called Stoneflesh Rock, it was called Niggerhead Rock. And um, that's right here in Lee County. He performed up there a lot. It was an all-white club. And uh, he was he was there by popular demand. It's like they requested him as often as he could be there. How do you think he felt about playing at a place called Niggerhead Rock? I think he he loved his music so much, and he enjoyed playing it. A self-taught musician um, that he probably didn't let little trivia things like that bother him. Just as long as he could get his music out and let people hear it. That's my impression of him. Anywhere around that they would hear that Spike Carson was playing, people would 
attend. Once my daddy played for um, a thing that we had at the white school because, like I said, our black school was real small, so we didn't have room to put on any kind of play or anything. So we was having this play like a nightclub, and my dad and his band was playing. And we would fix up drinks that, you know, they wouldn't be the real thing, but it looked like it was. And uh, we had a dancing contest, and me and Oscar Beatty won the contest, and Oscar played my daddy's band. He played the electric guitar. So, but anyway, it was more white people there than it was black. <laughs> but anyway, we had a real good time. But back then, you know, the black couldn't go where, let's say, where most of white was, but then when the black had something, all the white would show up to support us. And that's the way we had raising money at school to go on, you know, picnics and things. Spike Carson met several famous people in his day, musicians who recognized his exceptional talent at the keyboard. Then he went to New Orleans, him and his band, and uh, they played in the monograph. We went down there about three or four times. But once he went and uh, Lou Armstrong was there, so he played with Lou Armstrong for a while. Then they had talent contest, so my father came in second to Lou Armstrong. Wow. And we was all proud of him. I can't remember what was the name of that little restaurant you used to play with, uh, Big Stone. Sit on that hill as you come into Big Stone. Now he used to play there. And he told me this, that one night he was playing there, and he was fortunate enough to meet Elvis Presley. He came in. The big stone guy? Right. Yes, he was coming through. I forgot where he said he was going. And so he came in to get something to drink. And he sat down at the table with him. And uh, so he went out and got his guitar and came in and played for a little while. And so he told him as good as he could play, he wondered why he would want to waste his life here in Lee County. But he told him, well, he was getting over now, and uh, all his family was here, so he couldn't consider leaving now. Do you think he was appreciated in the community? Um, I think if you go through this area now and, and, and talk to anyone 60 years or older, they would, know, they would have known who Spike Carson was, and they would probably tell you that he was... Uh, an excellent musician. As far as being appreciated um, during that particular time, um, I just don't know if he was or not. Spike Carson died in 1970 when he was 65 years old, but his love for music remains alive in the younger generations of Lee County Carsons. But I have a grandson, Kevin, and uh, Fourth of July, he won two dancing contests at uh, that Penton Gap had for Fourth of July. They had a street dance here in Penton Gap at a place they called Handy Pantry. So they called his home and requested for him to come down in Millertown and dance to MC have music down that street dance, and he did. And was real proud of him because he took first place in both those contests. So I guess you can say Dyson does sort of run in the family. Do you like rap music? I love it. <laughs>
For Mountain News and World Report, I'm Maxine Kenny. While the recording was playing, Ron Carson's wife, Jill Carson, arrived and joined the tour. She was sick at the time, and so her voice is a very faint whisper. Oh, this is what's really this is amazing. great to me, because I didn't think I would ever stay here. <laughs> I'm telling them that you are, you are a Bostonian, and, and, uh, and you gave me five years, yeah. and uh, that was in 1988, 87, 88. <laughs> Yeah. And I well, tell them about it. It's, it's different. It's not <laughs> my home. Um, it's the history of this place that really kind of grabbed me and kept yeah. me here, I think. It's just, I mean, just the total story of the people. It's amazing to me. But you know what I found interesting? Before what I've been learning about today, I had no idea. I mean, for her, first of all, to be a female and then to be a black female and get elected yeah. on a town that has less than 30, I said 60 for the county, the town has less than 20 people of color. I'm talking Hispanics, African American total, and get the most votes for. Six. Second most votes. I'm sorry. Second most vote. Uh, you know, um, it, 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 it's, I, you know I, I don't know how to weigh that. I don't know how to, you know, if, if, if it's prejudice is there, then it didn't show because they wanted her. Mm. And like I said, with the coal miners, you know, um, I, you can tell how respected I am. So respected. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Maybe it rubbed off. That's I think as a. I worked for the school system, and uh, one of my first things that I said to the women that I worked with, I said, I guess the, uh, uh, the women's movement hasn't touched here yet. And I think they found me very different <laughs> because I spoke out. Because you said that. Yeah. And it was a matter of men getting over that because they didn't like that at all. No. Years later. Yeah. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Well, and, and it is uh, so different from Boston in terms of just Cultural everything. Events. Everything about it is different. Yeah. Everything about it is different. And you grew up, you grew up in Boston? Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I went to an all-girls school in Boston and um, just a different world. A different, everything about this place is different. <laughs> but I accept it, you know. It um, is what it is. Yeah. You know, I have a child that was born here. Our son was yeah, born in right. Boston. Our daughter was born here. They're very different. You know, I'm trying to find that letter about the, yeah. the uh, superintendent in 1936 sent a letter to the Lee County School System from Richmond saying, you have a group of kids 
They are not colored and they are not white. They were Melungeons. And we don't know what to do with them. So when I went to school here, there was probably 30 kids in this little one-room school. First grade said, well, at primer, kindergarten, they call it primer. First grade, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, you graduate. You didn't have no electric heat or no ceiling lights. You had an old coal burning stove that sat right over there. So, you, so this was your school? This was my school. So I, was, I went to school here. So how was it set up when you were? The teacher's desk sits right here where this desk is, and she would look this way. And the first row was primer, then first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. You start in the front and move back. Now, what she would tell you is that she did cooperative learning, meaning that she would teach the older kids first their lesson plan. And these are the books that we use for the different grades, the original books. Fun with Dick and Jane. I use this book right here. This is what I learned to read by, this book here. This is first grade. This is second third, fourth, then we graduated on up. Um, we had no running water and no indoor toilet. We had to make cups like this over here, and I made it a few years ago, out of notebook paper. This were the cups that we made out of sheets of paper, and we had a, a faucet in the basement on top of a coal pile that we would have to go up on top of the coal pile and catch the, no, it was dripping water. And that's what we drunk out of. And we would walk by the white school every morning that was down the bottom of the hill. And they had the cafeteria, they had the playground equipment. We had nothing. You know what we used for playground equipment? Sock balls. The parents would take socks, old socks with holes in them, roll them up in a ball and sew them into a ball. We take a broom handle and play right there in my front yard, sock ball. So you were, did you end up going to an integrated school before? I, when they integrated in 1965, 66, I went to Pennington High School. First time ever doing integration, yes. Do you remember much of what that process was like? Was it scary? Was it, it, it was very scary. First of all, you come from a one-room building and you go into a big high school where you change classes different teachers. We had never seen nothing like that before. The interaction uh, of walking in, uh, Penton High School had maybe 500 kids and there was maybe 35, 36 of us walking into the building for the first time. It was very scary. But you know what the principal said? R.E. Beeler was the principal. He was standing at the front door and he walked up and said, what took you so long to get here? because Brown versus the Board of Education was in 1954, separate but equal, but it, Virginia did not adopt it until 1965, some 12 years later before they integrated. And he said, what took you so long to get here? So after he said that, we felt like we had an outline that you know he wasn't resisting us coming, coming into the system. Um, that was fights. Fist fights, nothing like today. I mean, we fist fight, and then after school, we all got along good, pl play ball together, or, or go out and play together. Uh, but yes, it was scary. 
And during that same period of time, you see those four seats right there? Well, that was from the theater, from the colored balcony. We could not sit down on the main balcony with the leather seats and the leather back and the leather arm. We sat up top on the balcony. We could not go through the front doors of the theater. We had to go up the fire escape to get into the theater to, to watch the movie. Uh, that came after we integrated because we were going to school with the white kids, but we could not go in the bus station or go into the uh, movie theater or any restaurant and sit down until 1967. So what was the last thing around here to be integrated? I would say the theater and the bus station. There was a little petition that they had, colored only. Restroom, white, restroom colored. Those, those signs were everywhere. Water fountains, bathrooms, entrance to different establishments. Uh, 1966, 67, those signs w went down. What do you, I mean, do you feel like kind of having had that experience, is there a way where it still affects you? Do you still... I think children, children, adults my age live through that particular time. And I think it scarred us to some degree. Uh, Self-worth, uh, you know, when I left from here and went to Boston, my confidence level was, I'm telling you, it was down here. Um, but... The longer I lived there, the more I felt like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm just as good as anybody else. You know, some may have higher education than I do, but as a person, my worth is just as good as that person. So that taught me. The people who left, who decided to stay here and never migrated out of this area, there's a difference in their perspective of confidence, uh, being more introvert and extrovert because they lived here during that time period and just evolved here and never did get the confidence that, you know, you are just as good as, as, as somebody else. I see that a lot in what few older black people that are here. It's like being invisible. Um, you don't see the, the overt type racism, cross burning, calling you names and everything, but it's the invisibility. They seem to don't want to include you into any decision making. You don't get on any boards around here. You don't, um, um, they just, you just stay to yourselves. And most of the black people here do that. Uh, my wife and I, you know, we, we sort of like renegades, I guess, because we out there and everything that goes on, our, our hospital and everything, we are fighting for it. Um, but my mother, for an example, um, she goes to the, the black church on Sunday mornings, which is right down the hill here, uh, and uh, back to her house. And uh, she has no role in the community, and most black people doesn't have a role. That's why my kids were educated here, but they went to schools in other areas of the country, and, and I did not encourage them to come back here. Not now, not being a young adults. You know, maybe when you older, come back, it's fine, but, you know, learn how the other part of the country lives, because it's not indicative of what 
goes on here. But that, that's not to say this is a bad place. This is a good place. I mean, the scenery, the culture, and for the most part, the people are wonderful people. But it's not as progressive as certain parts of the country. And um, the invisibility of, of uh, the lack of diversity uh, is also uh, an, an issue. Well, to, to, to shift back to something uh -huh. we were talking about earlier, I'm still, I mean, something that's really striking to me is the story. You, that was your grandmother, you said, the, the barber who owned a ton yeah, of land? My great-great-grandmother, Rachel Scott. Okay. So, I mean, you were telling me about you have some records of some of her business dealings of trade and land away, but, yes. I mean, it's just, it. I, I imagine it was pretty uncommon at that time for a woman of color to be a, to own a big chunk of land. Do you know big. how that came to pass? or? She, her husband that she married um, was Native American and white. Now, she was Native American and black. And he, he, he had owned land. I, we have deeds showing that. But when he passed, she somehow amassed all this land, and excuse me, Jill, my wife knows the story better than I do. She, she, she doesn't research. How did Rachel Scott amass all this land? <laughs> it was. White people had her own. And I was telling um, Benny that we have deeds to where. She would take two, three hundred head of cattle for a hundred acres of land or fifty acres of land. She would trade land for other items, and you know, just as smart as she was of amassing this, it wasn't smart for her to make these deals um, with, with this land. You know, actually, I should be. I showed him that earlier. I should be wealthy. I should be I should I should be land wealthy, inherited all the way down. You know I'm the I have no brothers and sisters. I should be really wealthy, but that is not the case at all, because um, people uh, in power back in the late 1800s and early 1900s saw a way to take this land away from her, and I heard the rumors of it, but when I went down to the courthouse and pulled the old deeds and everything, um, then that's when we actually saw it and it hit home that we don't know if she was forced to do it. I don't know. I don't know. But, um, but she owned from here all the way out to the other end of town, which is maybe two and a half miles from here, all down there, all up here and everywhere. So there's no record of how it was sold or bought. You just know at some point exactly. it all got moved to someone else. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, I didn't show you this picture up here. Nathan Dykes, who is, uh, uh, was her brother-in-law, he was bought as a slave in Gate City, Virginia. Back in 18... Oh, I got the original. 1858. It would have been her, it wasn't her brother-in-law, let me get this straight now, but he was, 
so did a slave over in Gate City, Virginia. And it wasn't until 1903 that he actually got his freedom. And that's him at an older age sitting on the piece of land, the sharecropper that the slave owner, excuse me, gave him holding his uh, great grandbaby there. And what was his relation? What's his relation to you again? Would have been my uh, great, 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 great uncle on, on Champ Hamlin's side, which would have been Champ would have been Rachel Scott, who owned the land. Father. So she, this is Rachel Scott's uncle? Uncle, yes. Okay. Yes. Family's complicated. It's very complicated. It's very complicated. Very complicated. Well, do you know, I, mean, I, I said, other than this here and the, the Lynch, uh, the Eastern Kentucky mm -hmm. Social Club in Lynch, are mm -hmm. there other kind of the community hubs or cultural hubs or the only other from Roanoke back the only other one besides the Kentucky Social Club and the African and the Appalachian African American Cultural Center down in Knoxville you have the Beck Cultural Center and um, I think I have some information on the Beck over there uh, but that's usually that's Alcoa um, down Wafting, I'm sorry. Um, but very little. There's, there's nothing in the coal fields except for the Kentucky Social Club and, and what we are doing. And I'm not sure if they have documented anything about the uh, coal fields. Now, those are coal miners up here on this big picture. This is, this is in Lynch, Kentucky. And the picture's fading as you can see, but that's the miners getting off from work from a shift. Um, was, was there any connection between the communities here and the, the one in Lynch? Uh, yeah, there was a, uh, yes, church. Um, uh, the AME Zion, the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church um, was here and there's one in Lynch. And we would, once, once a month, the churches in Lynch and Benham and um, here in Big Stone Gap um, would, would try to get together for certain dinners and everything. But, but um, August the 8th was the day that the black people in this area called uh, Independence Day for some reason. And I can't give you a complete story on it, but I just know that August the 8th has a significant meaning to a lot of elderly black who has since passed. And August the 8th, everybody would get together and, and do a celebration like the 4th of July is, is today. So where, where would you all meet? We would meet here on this land. We would meet over in, in Lynch, Kentucky. We would meet up in Big Stone Gap, uh, over on the south side where the black churches were, Norton, Virginia. All the blacks were just coming together. Sometimes you would have... This is before me, but this is the group that went to Richmond back in, oh God, what year was that? But that's, that's the group. All got together. Wow, that's a big, that's a, how many people you think that is? What, like? I would say maybe a couple hundred, maybe, yeah. 250. That's quite something. Somewhere around there. Does it, wait, so does it say what year that is? Oh. Uh, 
I want to say it's around 35, maybe 35, 1936. Um, the year. Grand Session Richmond? Yeah. Of uh -huh. those. What is that? The, so this that was the, uh, the conference of the church that they that belonged to, the uh, black churches around here. And they all would get together and go there every so often. <laughs> Are there any other stories you'd like to share, things you think people ought to understand about this place and this com the community it's tied to? Well, it's, um, it's a, I just think, you know, I've always said, I always quote Carter G. Woodson, um, but perhaps the most important element to any given people is the documentation and preservation of their history. If a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition, and it stands to be lost in the eyes of society forever. That holds dear to me because very little has been written of the African-American experience in the coal fields of Appalachia. And my wife and I, through all histories, through videos, we started back in the 90s, we had tried to preserve that and hopefully that we can leave some type of documentation for the future generations to at least know where you came from. Because the deal saying goes, if you don't know where you came from, how do you know where you're going? And hopefully we can leave, leave something here for them. So that's, that's what this place means to you? That's what it means to me, yes, absolutely, special meaning. I have three loves in my life. Family, of course, wife and my kids. The cultural center, black lung is sort of on the same page with the cultural center and my gospel quartet. Um, those are the four things that keep Ron Carson going. Well, thank you so much for sharing. It's okay. definitely inspiring. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of Mountain Talk, the first in our month-long series dedicated to celebrating black histories, current realities, and futures in the mountains and beyond. Music on this episode features Pigmeat Jarrett playing Thunderin' and Lightning, Hey Joe, Got to Move, and Who's Going Out the Back Door, off of the album Look at the People, recorded at Apple Shop's own June Apple Records. Pigmeat Jarrett was born in Cordell, Georgia in 1899 and lived as a child in Rock House, Kentucky, in Pike County, where his father worked as a coal miner, before his family later settled in Cincinnati. He passed away in 1995. If you'd like to listen to this or other episodes of Mountain Talk again, you can find it on our website at www.wmmt.org or download it as a podcast on SoundCloud. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thank you for listening to Real People Radio.
music, yo. I know they're doing stuff down there. Boy, I believe they're having a ball. Let's tip in there and see what they're doing.